This is the Banker's Corner, a McGuire Woods series exploring investment trends, solutions, and business issues relevant in today's private equity and finance industry. Tune in with McGuire Woods partner Jeff Cockrell as he and specialists share real-world insight to help enhance your knowledge. Thank you for joining another episode of the Corner Series, where we bring together deal makers and thought leaders in the healthcare private equity intersection, uh, talking through trends, deal terms, and other dynamics in uh, healthcare private equity investing. Uh, I'm your host, Jeff Cockrell. I'm the chair of the McGuire Woods Private Equity Group, where I spend most of my time uh, in healthcare transactions and more specifically, a ton of time in provider services. And I'm thrilled to be joined today by my good friend, Kyle Brown, Managing Director at Brown Gibbons Lying Company. Kyle is one of the best investment bankers I know uh, and spends a ton of time in healthcare provider services. So I'm uh, anxious to be chatting with Kyle, but Kyle, maybe give a little introduction of yourself and BGL. Yes. Thanks, Jeff. Great to be here. I feel I was well on my way to achieving status as super fan of the podcast. So it's great to be joining you. Uh, BGL, classic middle market investment banking advisory firm, uh, based headquartered in Cleveland. Most of our uh, bankers in Chicago also have New York and LA coverage nationally. Within BGL, our healthcare and life sciences group covers a number of verticals, but our main power alley of our healthcare and life sciences group is provider services, where I spend all my time. I've been with BGL since 2010, and we've continued to grow the group and ongoing efforts across sub-verticals, but mainly uh, provider services. So great to be here. I think that's where a lot of our overlap with the McGuire Woods team has been. Look forward to digging in. So, so many conversations here kind of fairly early in 2023 have been uh, taking stock of where 2022 ended and then probably more significantly uh, looking forward into what we can expect here in 2023 as, as there's a fair amount of anxiety as to kind of the pattern of deal flow that is going to be coming, uh, impact of inflation, impact of uh, challenges around credit availability. But uh, Kyle, maybe starting with uh, 2022, uh, how did things end up fr from your perspective? Yes. So in healthcare services or more specifically into the provider services, 2022 deal volume was slightly up over 2021. And that's a, a testament to just the high level of activity because 2021 largely still had pent up demand from COVID and the lingering effects and finally getting back to some level of normalcy. So while 2022 as a whole was slightly up, that was clearly due to the first half, really the first three quarters, because Q4 with, we saw almost a standstill. There were still deals getting done that were the continuation, you know, a bit of the and one, if you will, where stuff was already pretty much baked, right? Financing was lined up, but the, the, the tumult in the credit markets is real. In Q4, there was uncertainty, which led to a lot of folks taking a pause. And so if you look at Q4, and we're seeing a continued ripple effect into Q1 of this year, uh, activity has by and large 
been down. I would say while Q4 of 2022 was more of a standstill, there's a, a kind of a reset and lenders are back lending in Q1, although debt financing is more expensive. And when you think about provider services, largely buy and build strategies dependent upon debt financing, that is dictating a lot of you know, trends in valuation. So right now, I would say by and large, you know, multiples are down, maybe 10%. And that's leading to you know, a, a flight to quality. So it's, it's quality over quantity is the theme right now. And that's leading to what we believe is going to be a very strong back half of 2023. A lot of these provider services assets, when talking with a lot of sponsors and independently held companies, last summer, the end of March, early April 2023, was going to be a big period of time for transaction activity. I would say we're at my vantage point right now, that looks like end of September, early October. But again, we don't uh, don't have the crystal ball. Uh, if I did, uh, I'm not sure I would be here right now. <laughs> well, right. That, you know, that that dovetailed into 2023. But when I'm thinking about 2022, it's this, the continuum of where are we right now? And, and what are we thinking about for next year? For sure. There, there were so many kind of cross currents uh, at the end of 2022 and now in 2023. I mean, so much of healthcare transactions are very middle market-ish. And the the credit pinch pinched first kind of up market. So the the bigger syndicated debt deals became more difficult to do. But as you migrated down kind of the the feeding chain to smaller deals or middle market deals and and certainly lower middle market deals, that credit was a little easier to come by. A lot of transactions that happen are uh, add-ons. So you may have uh, existing platforms that had. DDTL availabilities so they could draw on existing credit facilities. And so there was a runway. And I feel like here in January, February, does that, that runway has gotten harder to, to find for existing credit facilities. And the thought of kind of opening up a, a credit facility to expand the DDTL availability has, has been an expensive one. Um, and so the middle market has kind of caught up to the pinch uh, in the up market. But as we're sitting here uh, now, a little ways in, starting to see uh, kind of signs of life. Um, but it's interesting to hear your prognosis uh, that what we hope to be a, a much more active a April, May is now kind of pushing back later in the year. That's pretty consistent with what we're seeing. However, uh, deals are still getting done. Um, just there's fewer of them. And like you said, it's kind of a, a flight to quality. But maybe coming back to one thing you said on pricing, that was uh, interesting uh, that you're seeing maybe a 10% reduction in multiples. That, that's been a little bit more mixed in my experience that of things that have come across my desk that it's it's actually been a pain point in deals that buyers expectation on pricing kind of has some formulaic inputs. And one of the formulaic inputs is cost of capital. 
and their return expectations don't change, but a higher cost of capital, the the way that shakes itself out in the formula is a, a lower multiple, but that has been harder for sellers to uh, accept. And that a little bit of gap between buyer and seller expectation has been a real friction point. How are you seeing sellers grapple with the idea that uh, a year ago their business was worth, let's call it 12, 13 times. And uh, in the in the year since then, all they've done is performed a plan, but now it's worth 11, 12. Uh, um, how have you seen sellers come to grips with the implications on pricing of higher cost of capital? Yeah, Jeff, great question. And you made a couple of great points there as well. I have just first in the past three months on a couple bid dates, I have heard the reference to, you know, the returns model and getting back to financial theory more so from the private equity community than I had heard in probably the past three years, where it's not as simple as the multiple years. I say, well, you know, our once we run this out and going to your cost of capital situation, that has reared its head. And right, wrong, or indifferent, it just happens. And it's always a reality. So I completely agree with what you said there. Um, in terms of valuation and how sellers look at it, the lag, called the value expectation lag, is real, right? On the way up, it sticks in terms of the seller's view on value. And then buyers, sponsors, meter strategics and financial sponsors alike, they're quick to act on market conditions that may necessitate lower value. And sellers, however, it takes them a quarter to two quarters, maybe even a year to realize that. So what folks, look, folks that are committed to doing something, say, look, it's just a longer term strategy. They're going to be inclined to just roll over more and accept it. I think those are perhaps more enlightened folks uh, on the sell side, but also folks just say, look, they're not going to do anything. And so there has been a lot of conversations going on in 2023 about folks looking internally. What can we do to better build out the platform? So when we come out of this, let's call it Q3, Q4, when the credit markets lighten back up, they're going to be in a position to grow. So folks are looking at operations. They're looking at platform infrastructure. A lot of them are even looking at uh, mergers, saying, look, do we get to scale this way? And, and now if we're going to be heads down for six months, why not be looking at a merger of equals? Uh, and then lastly, trying to fine tune the de novo or organic growth strategies. Because part of this, I think the reality of this is value when you're looking at four drivers of value, regardless of the subsector, right? Do you have platform infrastructure? Are you diversified? And do you have a true you know, dual pronged growth strategy because sure buy and build all day. You have that integration strategy in spades. Great. But I've seen, and this isn't really just because of the debt uh, financing markets, but over the pot really since COVID folks putting a premium on de novo growth strategies. There are uh, also a number of ways that I see buyers kind of, squishing the price a little bit without maybe quite as much reducing the multiple, 
but you can push on some other things. You can kind of lean a little bit more heavily into contingent consideration. You can be more aggressive on what's going to get credit in pro forma. You can be a bit more aggressive on kind of pricing adjustments based on things that come out of the Q of E. So there, there are also some tools available without explicitly changing the, the headline number that still translate to pricing pressure. Uh, are you seeing those dynamics as well? Yes. And look, it, majority of our work on the sell side, right? Earnout contingent consideration has always been a, a bad word, but if it's, if it's icing on the cake, it can be just and acceptable. And I would say that by and large, our clients have been more open to structure. We've been fortunate to not have a lot of that in our deals, but it was, it started with in 2020 and 2021 still in this whole, the COVID um, impact on companies that are directly providing care, right? A lot of those were clearly impacted by COVID. So you saw structured deals. And I think that's where this lag. So if that was 2020, now we're what? I mean, geez, almost three years, three years, three years, you know, in like a week, right? From the beginning of, from beginning of COVID. So now folks have seen their friends do deals with structure Burn out, what have you. And now it's perhaps a different reason for that, but it's becoming more acceptable. And if it's sellers would say, look, I have no problem putting my money where my mouth is. Naturally, Jeff, I think if, you know, if we're collaborating on something, we're still, it's tough to get it right, not only from a compliance standpoint, but the concept of what is the target because you're relinquishing control of the company. So, Point, yeah, you know, it, it just alignment is huge in whatever we do. And I still think cons, contingent consideration is not the best path for optimal alignment. But directly to your point, we are seeing it more. And frankly, sellers are you know, more open to having the discussion. In the Legal analysis of those sort of contingent purchase prices five years ago, it was a dirty word uh, as well, more specifically on the compliance end, especially in provider services where uh, we all live uh, and you've got uh, government reimbursement. There's certainly some some uh, context where that's just a, a no-fly zone. There's no way to do it, but there's increasingly some tracks around the edges of uh, that where where folks are getting comfortable with certain forms of contingent consideration tied to certain things. Uh, if you're careful, uh, there's ways to navigate that as an idea sometimes. Um, so definitely seeing the market moving incrementally in that direction uh, in ways that were uh, thought of as harder to do uh, a few years ago, but we'll see how that trend continues. Maybe switching a little bit uh, to sector uh, focus, it's always an interesting topic to me to think about kind of where private equity uh, investing is going. And it, there's a level where it all kind of uh, 
moves in a herd and there's dynamics around that. And uh, I understand why that happens. But as to particular sectors, notwithstanding the kind of macro headwinds, the the investment world does keep rolling on. What sectors are you seeing of uh, highest level of interest from both a buyer and seller perspective? So orthopedics, speaking to the higher end of the acuity spectrum, it's been a little bit of a slower burn in terms of the volume of M&A activity. Certainly less frequent add-on activity than, say, in retail medicine. And look, it's integration's tough. Some of these groups are vehemently independent. Uh, there's inconsistencies with comp structure and equity structure. But needless to say, if there's you know, 15 platforms, and two or three of them at least are going to be up for trading in 2023 which is you know, 15 or 20% of the private equity held assets out there. So if you do it on a percentage basis, that's going to be the high activity levels. And now that there are options for the groups that are say five to 10 million of EBITDA because you have the emergence of additional platforms. So uh, time will tell, but I think there are, there's going to be activity good a bit with both the sponsor-backed assets in orthopedics and the independents. Yeah, we're seeing similar dynamics. I think uh, orthopedics is a is an interesting sector in, in part because there's disruptive things that can happen, like market disruptive things that can happen. The ability to, if you can get scale in a market and then approach in particular commercial payers with more extensive value-based contracting ideas, that's a significantly disruptive effect in a market. Similarly, if you get a little bit of scale in a market, you can do interesting things with joint venturing with health systems that are also disruptive in a market. Similarly, again, the ability to kind of draw more heavily into kind of utilizing ASCs in ways that maybe hadn't been utilized as fully before. All of those things are super disruptive to existing markets. And as I see some of the larger platforms roll into markets, uh, just the ability to disrupt them makes them super interesting investment ideas. Yeah. And look to echo that, Jeff, it's by definition, right? These orthopedics, cardiology, oncology, to be an independent group, that would be a interesting investment opportunity you have to already have a certain amount of scale um, just because you're competing with the health system. So I think part of this over the past five years, what some of the existing platforms have learned is how to coexist, how to be more creative because orthopedics is not a one size fits all. And as I mentioned, you know, it's just inconsistencies with comp partnership on ASCs. So you know, five years ago coming in and saying, look, the MSO should own 100% of this ASC. And, you know, the, the one question is whether or not you have physicians owned directly into the ASC or through the MSO saying, well, look, you, a lot of these facilities, MSK backed facility plays, ASC plays, right? They, they have partners that's been going on before any of this practice rule. And I know we had, we had done deals and come across McGuire Woods a lot starting in 2012 on the you know, physician-owned hospital and ASC plays because those are all anchored by MSK and the power player orthopedic groups in each geography. 
So you have some of that that's had they already done a facilities transaction because clearly any investor is going to want to be aligned across the practice and the ASC. So needless to say, more complexity takes a bit more time, uh, more work for private equity players, strategic buyers, advisors to the companies, but the juice is definitely worth the squeeze in orthopedics and will continue to be in 2023 and beyond. Yeah, that that dynamic of more complicated ASC transactions has been a, a recurring theme of some of the areas where we have seen a lot of activity, whether that is uh, ophthalmology, uh, GI, the, the ASC corner of those deals has gotten way more interesting as um, uh, platforms are looking differently as to how to maybe uh, joint venture with uh, one of the more national AC management companies, maybe joint venture with a health system. Again, it's a it's a topic where scale uh, in a market lets you uh, think of more interesting dynamics of what you can do. And so that particular ASC dynamic, while it's been fueling some of the activity in orthopedic arena, it's also fueling activity in those other arenas. Uh, are, you, are you seeing similar dynamics? Uh, yes. And um, one, again, stepping down the uh, acuity spectrum, but still an MSK pain management. I was often, I think, unfairly penalized by the investment community. Uh, there had been some bad actors. Compliance is huge. But what we've seen since... 2016, 2016, 2018, there was a, there were some pockets of investment there. You had some reimbursement changes in pain management and then naturally COVID. So the jury's kind of out on how some of these platforms have performed. But in the past 10 months, you've had four new private equity entrants into pain management, five if you date back to January of 2022. So that is the most activity We've seen since kind of the first wave of the interventional pain management consolidation. So I think the some of the smoke is settled on reimbursement. 2023 is looking good. ASC codes are more than offset. Some practice Medicare, E&M reimbursement cuts. But folks, I, there's a migration towards more, you know, more complex interventional procedures. Seeing the investment community favor those being a solution to the opioid crisis. And one interesting dynamic in pain from a transaction standpoint, from if you're uh, you know, a roll-up strategy or even the first institutional investment, we're seeing, and Jeff, I'd love to hear your perspective, a lot of these interventional pain management practices are consolidated ownership. And we're talking amongst you know, our colleagues on this, and you think about because of the historical compliance, so some of these associate big producers, great physicians, just like, look, I don't really want to have that risk. And then also dovetailing to our prior conversation on these facilities plays, a lot of pain, pain management has been a great adjunct to these orthopedic-focused ASCs and surgical hospitals. So it seems like every pain physician had a little bit of an ownership over in a, a, a separate ASC, which means they were, they were complacent. They were doing very well. You could be a solo pain operator, but as compliance and, and reimbursement is kind of, 
you know, forced some of the bad actors out of the uh, industry. What it's left is kind of single owner folks that if they're doing it the right way and they've got an ASC, you can get a lot of yield per physician, meaning just a lot of profitability. And from a transaction standpoint, you're not dealing with, you know, 15 owners. Absolutely. And the, some of the early dynamics that made it uh, difficult to do deals in that space is just the amount of money that folks were making from the lab side of the business. The, the idea being like, if you get a little bit of scale, you could internalize some of the revenue of uh, a lab, but it was just too much. Uh, you ha- you'd see these uh, practices that were like eight, $9 million in EBITDA and you peel it back and, it was a couple million dollars uh, EBITDA from kind of regular uh, practice things and then tons of EBITDA from the lab side. And there's when you've got that sort of uh, economic boon, something's going to get clipped either from a regulatory perspective or from a reimbursement perspective. But you had the palpable sensation that, yeah, it's great if you've got uh, a platform and you're adding lab capacity, but it's hard to sell that at a multiple when one way or the other, you know, it's going to get clipped. Um, and some of those were, like you said, bad actors. Some of it was just once the the economics settled after that consolidation, that the reimbursement was just going to be too high. And that's kind of how it played out. But to your point, that dust settles and then you have more stable uh, yet profitable businesses. And to your other point, uh, it's exactly correct that you end up with shorter list of uh, owners, which... Uh, makes a transaction easier to navigate as well. So the the lifting of the cloud surrounding uh, some of those dynamics has definitely opened up that arena. And uh, we've worked on a couple of uh, interventional pain uh, transactions and definitely think we're going to see some more. Yeah, I think just on the, the last point, alignment's huge on, you know, in physician-driven models, clearly. So the consolidated ownership, but we'll call it visibly consolidated or eyes wide open, if you will. So it's not this where the associates are promised equity. It's everyone knows what's going on. So I think that's a, that's the right type of consolidated ownership. And if you're stepping into an investment, they'd say, yeah, that's great. No, I will buy in. And I like the idea of having a bigger entity that's you know institutionalized, and so now maybe it's the right time for me to buy in as you know a a heavy hitting physician who wasn't previously an owner. Well, uh, Kyle, we could talk all day, but we, we try to keep these to uh, 20, 25 minutes, and we'll have to have you back on, and we can explore some more uh, topics. But this has been a ton of fun, and uh, it'll be very, very interesting to see how the balance of 2023 uh, plays out. But uh, thanks again for joining. This has been really a ton of fun. Yeah, no, my, my pleasure, Jeff. Great being with you guys. And uh, we'll talk soon. Thank you for joining us on this installment of the Banker's Corner. To learn more about today's discussion, please email host Jeff Cockrell at gcockrell at mcguirewoods.com. We look forward to hearing from you. This series was recorded and is being made available by McGuire Woods for informational purposes only. By accessing this series, you acknowledge that McGuire Woods makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this installment. 
The views, information, or opinions expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those of McGuire Woods. This series should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice from a licensed professional attorney in your state and should not be construed as an offer to make or consider any investment or course of action.